Our scripture for this morning comes from uh, Revelation chapter 4. Um, it can be found right at the back of your Bibles. <laughs> it says, After this I looked, and before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. And they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder, Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and were covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Amen. As soon as the end of the first century AD, about only 70 or so years after Jesus rose from the dead, Christianity had spread far and wide throughout the Roman Empire. People heard the good news that, the, that Jesus was the promised king that would bring peace to the world and that they could receive salvation and forgiveness for their sins and the number of people who came to trust in God was incredible. This was true even during the reign of the emperor Nero who had harshly persecuted Christians, including by killing the apostles Peter and Paul. By this point, all of the apostles had been killed by persecution except for one, John, who was exiled by Roman authorities to a tiny deserted island in the middle of the Aegean Sea called Patmos, where he received his vision, which would become the book of Revelation. Now, Domitian was the emperor of the Roman Empire from 81 AD to 96 AD, which is the same time that John wrote this book of Revelation. He was concerned that Roman religion had been slowly changing over time, and he saw that as a threat to his own power. In ancient Rome, the central religion, where people worshiped the most powerful gods like Jupiter and Venus, was tied to specific families that had been present since the founding of Rome, called the patricians. The plebeians, who were not from those original families of Rome, were allowed to have religious practices, but were always meant to be outsiders from this central religion. What that meant is that religion in the Roman Empire gave a lot of power to the rich, but intentionally denied the poor full inclusion into their religious practices. Including the poor was a threat to that power. But what Christianity said was that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, rich nor poor, patrician nor plebeian, for all are one in Christ Jesus. 
This was particularly attractive to those Roman citizens who had been kept outside of the true Roman religion. Christianity offered them a place where they could be full members of the religion, and nothing stood between them and God. Of course, that was most attracted to the lower classes of society. And many Roman people made fun of Christianity as a religion for women and slaves. Domitian, the emperor, had a real problem with that. If there was a religion that united all the lower classes and that recognized Jesus as king and not him, then why would anybody obey Domitian when they could obey Jesus, who was a far better king? Christians refused to worship or offer sacrifices to the emperor. Even worse, Christianity was beginning to reach even the upper levels of society. One of the consuls of Rome, which was basically the second in command to the emperor, had converted to Christianity in 95 AD. So Domitian hated Christianity. He associated with traitors and the dreads of society. And so he started putting tons of Christians to death, even including the second in command and his wife. Hundreds of years later, Christians would remember the reign of Domitian as the time when they faced some of their worst persecution. Domitian also insisted that everyone would call him our Lord and God. Whenever he sent out a decree, he insisted that the people who announced his decree would say, our Lord and God, Domitian, says this and this. It became so common that everyone who heard our Lord and God would think that the next word would be Domitian. You might notice something really interesting in this passage. In verse 11, the 24 elders say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive honor and glory and power. They're saying exactly the same thing that everybody said for Domitian. In fact, unlike in English, word order for Greek is very flexible. Um, In many cases, you can switch around the way the words are ordered however you want. But the Greek phrase, our Lord and God in Revelation, is ordered and phrased exactly the same way that Domitian liked it. It'd be like if I wrote in a book about God, in God we trust. It would be impossible to think about it without thinking about America or money. Just the same way, it would be impossible to think our Lord and God without thinking of the emperor. You could hear the encouragement there from the elders, to the, earth, of the elders of the people to the earth. It may look at times like Domitian is Lord and God. He seems to have complete control over all of you, and he has put you to death. But remember that there is one true Lord and God that sits in heaven. He is t- totally in control over this earth. And Domitian is just a pretender. One day Domitian will be judged and you'll be presented totally clean before the true God if you persevere. The people who were reading Revelation would have faced terrible persecutions. They would have seen their friends die in terrible ways out of loyalty to King Jesus. They did all they could to keep the faith. But I can imagine that sometimes it would be hard. It'd be hard not to think, while your friend was being strung up for following Jesus, that the real ruler of all things wasn't Jesus, but was Domitian. It seems like the one that's really winning the battle isn't Jesus, but the emperor. That the one who who was and is and is to come isn't Jesus, but the emperor. How could you not, when you and your friends have to suffer so much for Jesus' sake, while the ones that serve the emperor get riches and get rewarded? We see similar things ourselves. We look throughout the world, and so many times we see people who actively fight against God get rewarded, doing terrible things, but still succeeding. 
Meanwhile, Christians throughout the world still face persecution just as bad, if not worse, than the ones they faced under Domitian. In my classes at Bethany Seminary, there are a lot of people from the Brethren Church in Nigeria who are constantly harassed and persecuted by a group called Boko Haram. Their churches are burned and their friends are kidnapped because they're faithful to Team Jesus. In these two weeks, we'll talk about how John comforts us, that Jesus really is the true Lord and God, and not any of the other evil powers in this world. Boko Haram is puny, pathetic, and an insignificant power compared to the overwhelming power of God. And they only exist and only have power until God stamps them out. When we see chaos and evil on the news, we are tempted to think that that's the natural order of things. But instead, this passage reminds us that there is one Lord and God that upholds all things by the word of his power. Chaos and evil only exist until God finally stamps them out. They have no legitimacy in themselves, but exist only as long as God allows them to exist, until he comes again. The elders say, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. There is one creator of the entire world, and because there is one creator of the world, there is only one true owner of the world. Anybody who acts against the wishes of the creator and tries to usurp God's glory and honor and power is like a child who plays, up, plays dress up with the robes of God himself. But every time someone tries to do that, including the, mo including the most powerful and honorable people in the world, the wise know that they look ridiculous, like a two-year-old walking around in her grown-up shoes. So we should remember that whenever we begin to despair that maybe evil ruler rulers really do have the final say in all creation, God will come in judgment and wrath against them in their final day, and it will become obvious to all how puny and pathetic their power really is. You can see it in the description of God's throne. You hear its description and you know instinctively that that's what a throne really looks like. It's fitting for the throne of the king of the universe. But it's also totally impossible for the throne of a mere human to look like it. You cannot imagine a human throne that had a rainbow of emerald or constant flashes of lightning and rolls of thunder. They will be judged to receive the honor, glory, and power that they thought they deserved. But this passage gives its own warning to us. Because we all have a certain measure of power in ourselves. We may also feel tempted to use whatever power we have for our own gain. Maybe as a parent, you have a certain image of what your authority as a parent looks like, and you try to use it to glorify yourself. Maybe you have a certain amount of power afforded by your money, and you want to use that for your own gain. Maybe you're a coach for some youth soccer team, and you really want it to get the glory of winning, so you push them to the point that they hate the sport. We all have opportunities to be tyrants with whatever power we have. You can think about the stereotype of workers at the DMV who just want to make life as difficult as possible for the regular people to come in to get their license renewed. They have power over their customers, and they know it. So they use it for their own gain and for their own enjoyment. The only difference between a true tyrant like Domitian and that stereotypical person that works at the DMV is that the tyrant has more power and so has more opportunity to flex that power. This passage is a clear warning to emperors like Domitian, but it's also a warning to people like us, because we all have a certain measure of power in our lives over other people. 
Will we use it for our benefit or for theirs? And we all have the temptation to try to use that power to usurp the glory and honor that's due only to God himself. But the moment that God's glory is finally revealed, there will naturally be judgment when the glory that we tried to hold hoard for ourselves is shown to look laughable compared to the image of God on his throne. This book was written in part to respond to the Roman Empire, which had a level of power that had not been seen in the history of the world. For the last 30 years, the United States has de facto ruled the world. If a country did something totally against the interests of the US, the US has had the power to punish them so severely that they would have to back down. After the fall of the Soviet Union, our country has had a level of power that has not been seen in the entire history of the world. And that power comes with incredible responsibility. Will we wield that power as tyrants only for our own interests or for the advancement of others? Will we use that power to love and serve the world or will we use it to usurp the natural glory of God? As citizens of that country, we have a responsibility to bear witness to the kingdom of God here. We have a responsibility to remind our country that even if it looks like the true Lord and God of the earth, if, even if we look like the true Lord and God of the earth, that we will have to answer to the true Lord and God for how we use that power. As Shakespeare says, heavy is the head that wears the crown. The immense power that our country has means incredible responsibility, incredible opportunity to bear witness to what power looks like in the kingdom of God, but also an opportunity to abuse that power for our own gain without even knowing it. We have to look at ourselves soberly to make sure that we aren't abusing that power. We're in a position that's very similar to Rome in this passage, with sovereign power over a vast empire. Let's wield that power carefully so we're not judged like they were in this book. So if we're not meant to use the power that God has given us for our own gain, if we're not meant to steal the power of God to play dress up with his glory, what are we meant to do? The answer can be found in the very beginning of creation. When God made humans, he made us in his image. And that has a very specific meaning in the ancient world. Kings who had a very big empire in those times didn't have the means to demonstrate that power everywhere. They didn't have TVs or radios to give messages so that everyone would know that they're in charge. So what they did was they created statues or images of themselves all throughout their territory. And they were meant to represent the rule of the king wherever they were. We were made in God's image. And so we have that same role. We're meant to represent God's rule over all of creation in the small little spheres where we've been given responsibility in the home, at work, with our money, in church, everywhere. And so that means that we rule the same way that God would rule, which happens to be the same way that Jesus did rule when he went to the cross. We give up our honor and glory and wield our power for the sake of those that God loves. We take our little corner of the universe and claim it as the territory of God's kingdom. In our little territory, our God reigns. And we show the world how wonderful it is to live in God's kingdom where injustice and chaos and death and the forces of evil have no hold at all. And like the elders in this passage did, we cast our crowns before God and we recognize that we're responsible to rule in his name and for his name and not for our own. Instead of trying to play dress up with that glory, we add our own little part to the praise of God that is happening in heaven right now. 
and we get to see a little foretaste of it when we, we will join that chorus ourselves. Let's pray. Almighty God, we recognize that the only power we have is what you have given us. And so we want to use that power for your glory and for our neighbor's good. Give us wisdom and humility so that we can do that effectively and so that the world would see what it looks like to live in your perfect kingdom. Amen.